Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New from the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and thank you for listening to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. In this episode, I chat with Australian Society of Anesthetists member, Professor Eugenie Kayak, who was last year appointed as the Enterprise Professor in Sustainable Healthcare at Melbourne University. Fantastic. It's great seeing our fabulous ASA member anesthetists kicking goals in their careers. Professor Kayak has had a long-standing interest in environmental sustainability and healthcare, and in so doing has held some pretty significant leadership roles, such as being on the board and co-chair of Doctors for the Environment Australia, otherwise known as DEA. We are, in this episode, of course, talking about environmental sustainability. All right, enough from me. Let's hear directly from Professor Kayak about all of this, as well as what you can do to improve environmental sustainability in your operating theatre. Thanks for chatting with me today. I really wanted to have a chat with you about just all the fantastic work that you've been doing in terms of sustainability. It's hard to go anywhere without hearing your name when we talk about oh. anesthesia and sustainability now, which is fantastic. Thank um, you, Susie. <laughs> that's all right. And I wanted to start actually with congratulations on becoming the Enterprise Professor in Sustainable Healthcare at the University of Melbourne. That's huge. What does that mean for you? So thank you. Yes, I'm very honoured to be appointed to the position of Enterprise Professor within the medical school at the University of Melbourne. And I think it's an acknowledgement of the importance of sustainable healthcare and it's a rapidly emerging discipline. For me personally, it means I have a 0.2 position there. So I've still got my clinical load at the moment. And it's about enabling and working with the university to actually embed sustainable healthcare into their teaching and learning research and also engagement and engagement within the university, but also with external partners to actually elevate the issue in the area and to try and assist in further action as effectively as possible. I want to go back first. So you're an anaesthetist in Melbourne. Yes, I am. I work both in public and private. So when did you start getting an interest in the environment and sustainability? Yes, it's an interesting question because I think a lot of people have that hit me moment. I don't really have that. So I think I've always been aware that we're very much reliant on our earth to support us and what we were doing as a human race was unsustainable. I had two children and came back to work and knew that I really needed to do something in the space of the environment. And that was over a decade ago, so probably about 15 years ago. And so then it was a matter of looking around and working out what I guess, the best avenue for me would be. And were you an anaesthetist at that stage? I was an anaesthetist at that stage and I had originally thought that I might actually set up an anaesthetic group, so a green anaesthetic group. Great concept. I read a book that said if you want to do something in the environment movement and thinking this is about 15 years ago, don't start a new group. There are enough already. Join a group that already exists and make it better if you think it needs to be better and work in your own cohort whether that's family or friends or colleagues or neighbourhoods, and start there. So soon after that, I discovered Doctors for the Environment Australia that was already a functioning not-for-profit organisation and joined DEA. Ah, great. And great advice for people who are interested. And so what did you do in those early days with DEA? 
Interestingly, the very first thing I did was actually with Forbes McGain. We put a submission to the Victorian government on greening healthcare. So that's 13 years ago. And so that was the very first thing I did. And then soon after that, I joined the DEA board and I was on the board for about 12 years and got quite involved in their governance and organisational leadership area. Wow. And are you still on the board of DEA? No. A few years ago, DEA went for an organisational review, which I led, and we had a governance restructure and a constitutional change and employed an executive director. And after that, I felt it was my time to step off and move on to other things. Which is natural progression of board membership, isn't it? Was very much enough time. What are some of your best memories from that time on the board? So, look, I started off in the area of sustainable healthcare and then transgressed for a few years, realised that no matter what we did, if our electricity grid was still very much reliant on brown coal or high-intensity carbon emissions, then actions we took were, were relatively limited. So I'm quite proud to say that with DA, I helped lead one of probably the first legal challenges from a healthcare organisation against the new coal-fired power station, both on health grounds, local pollution grounds, and also on climate change grounds. And that was at the time in 2011, they were, the EPA had approved in Victoria for a new coal-fired power station to be built in Morwell. And other groups, Environment Victoria and DEA, opposed that legally. So that was quite a big effort. Yeah. And that power plant was never built. It was actually given the okay to be built, but there were very strict environmental conditions put on it, which really the company couldn't realistically meet. Interesting. I sort of take that as a a roundabout success. Great. I would take that. You mentioned before brown coal and other high-intensity carbon emissions. What are some examples of that? In Victoria, the electricity grid has been traditionally reliant on brown coal. And as I'm sure many are aware, we are transitioning from that and the renewable energy industry is quite rapidly growing. And pleasingly in Victoria, the state government has actually committed that all our Victorian public hospitals will be run on 100% renewable electricity by 2025. So the electricity they buy will be from renewable energy sources, which is quite astounding. So For us, it's brown coal. Obviously, black coal, which is what they mine and burn in New South Wales, is also very high energy intensive. And we can't forget gas. So gas is also an important product that we need to move away from as quickly as possible. Mm. The Victorian government move towards renewable energy, is that also work of the DEA? Not directly. I'd like to think that we very much encourage them to include public hospitals in that announcement. So they have announced that all their government building and works will be supplied by 100% renewable electricity by 2025. And they announced that about a year and a half ago. And we very much advocated that public hospitals needed to be included in that. One of the things I think with an advocacy group, any advocacy group, it's always quite difficult to know what you have in the end influenced and what you haven't. That's true. It's always their decision. And one of the things that I keep hearing about when we talk about whether anaesthetists or doctors should get involved with environmental issues, it's not in our lane. It's not to do with anaesthesia. It's not to do with healthcare. You've done more than a decade of work in this area. What do you say in response to that comment? 
There's a few things that I will argue that it very much is our responsibility and our lane. First of all, climate change is a significant health threat. The WHO, most of the health organisations, renowned health organisations around the world consider it potentially the biggest health threat this century. And in 2019, many health organisations declared climate change a health emergency. So we're doctors. We're in the practice of delivering health and health care. This is a health emergency. So I think we have agency on this. And if we're not going to speak up, then who do we expect to speak up and lead? It's a health emergency. Secondly, we have a responsibility. Healthcare itself is a significant greenhouse gas emitter, both in Australia and globally. If the health sector was a nation, it would be the fifth largest national emitter in the world. And in Australia, the healthcare sector is estimated to be responsible for over 7% of our total greenhouse gas emissions. So we have agency, we have a responsibility, and I think we really do have a trusted voice. We've spoken up in the past when it initially hasn't been very popular on threats to public health, whether that be tobacco control, seatbelts, helmets with bicycles. We have a proud history of influencing public policy to protect health. And this is no different. In fact, this, I would argue, is even more urgent and more important because it's all-encompassing. I guess the other thing is we actually have the tools. So now we really do have the tools to change society around. We have the tools to decarbonise and to decarbonise fast, which is what we need to do. And doctors and healthcare professionals generally, and I argue this, are good at translating complex scientific issues and reaching a broad sector of our community, whether it be policymakers, the public, other colleagues. So I think it really is our our place to stand up and speak out on this. So just focusing in on anaesthesia, what do you think a greener future in anaesthesia might look like? I would hope that a greener future in anaesthesia would be one that, first of all, addressed unnecessary care. So it's one where we're involved. It's looking at the perioperative landscape. So the first thing that healthcare needs to do is actually invest in preventative care and try and prevent escalation of care. So it's about the right care at the right time in the right place. And I think as anaesthetists in hospitals, we do have a place in that and in good perioperative care. Definitely. So it's about actually really delivering high-quality care, evidence-based care. But then particularly as anaesthetists, the nature of our work, we work in the operating room, it's a carbon-intensive, high-waste environment. So it's about looking at our own practices and what we can do on a day-to-day basis. And most are probably aware our volatile anaesthetic agents are all greenhouse gas agents. Desflurane is by far, far more potent than sevoflurane and isoflurane. Nitrous oxide is also a significant greenhouse gas and it's also an ozone depleting product. So the choices we make can be really significant. In fact, as anaesthetists, the choices we make at work with our practice, our anaesthetic practice, can have more impact on our carbon footprint than what we potentially do at home or in our personal lives. So we're in a unique situation there. I've never heard that one before. How do you actually do the sums? If you, for instance, use desflurane for half a day, even at quite low flows, the carbon equivalent is probably the same as you flying to Sydney from Melbourne for lunch and back, just for using it for half a day. 
So if you did it five days a week, then that's a lot of trips to Sydney. Yeah, the choices we make at work do matter. And further anaesthetists are usually quite a, a voice in leadership in hospitals. So I think as a group, we can band together and influence how hospitals act and lead in this area, whether that be on executive committees or on hospital environment committees, we can really have a voice there as well. And I've heard of hospitals based on that who have removed desferrin from their formulary. Yes, there are. So increasingly overseas and in Australia. So in Australia, the fantastic Trash Group, which is the trainee-led research and audit in anaesthesia for sustainable healthcare, have a ditch the DES pledge. And on their website, you can see the hospitals that have actually already removed desfluran. And I think there's almost a dozen mm-hmm. from their formulary. And there's another 10 or 12 that are actually committed to doing it by 2025. So that's really fantastic. And in the UK, for instance, a lot of hospitals are moving completely away from it. Mm. In fact, I heard the other day that in the UK, the College of Anaesthetists there have actually written to the NHS asking them to actually get rid of DES. Wow. I don't think that's happened yet. <laughs> well, you just need to see when that happened. Yes. And I even learned that even having DES on the machine and having it go through a machine check is contributing to a huge wastage of desflurane. So even if your hospital is still going to keep it, you potentially could ask to get it removed from machines. Absolutely. There's been some work that's been done showing that it releases greenhouse gas emissions and it also costs to actually have the DES just on the machines because, as you say, going through the machine checks each day emits desflurane. What other things, what other day-to-day things can we consider looking at in our practice, given that we spend so much time at work and maybe do more to contribute? I think it's always good to go back to the, the pyramid of R's. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink, research. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's about reducing what you use if you can. So that can be our gases, but it can also be reducing our equipment and reusing. There's been some studies done about reusing anaesthetic equipment, and it is possible. The Western in Victoria does reuse their anaesthetic equipment. And I say the Western because I think most other hospitals in Australia don't reuse their laryngoscope blades, face masks, a whole lot of anaesthetic equipment. So that could be one thing that we could do. That's been a really big impact on healthcare, isn't it? We've gone to single-use tourniquets and so much single-use equipment now. And I think we need to rethink that. So rethink is another R as well. And it would be fantastic if we could start thinking a bit more about what really needs to be single-use and what can actually go back to being reusable. Mm. Particularly, and this is an interesting thing in Victoria, at the moment, the carbon footprint of our single-use equipment is actually less than the reusable equipment because the reusable equipment needs to be washed and sterilised in electric-driven machinery, which is generally supplied by brown coal electricity. But in 2025, that's going to flip Mm. because our hospitals then will be supplied by 100% renewable electricity. So then also our reusable equipment will not only save money, studies have shown that it tends to save money, but it will also have a lower carbon footprint. And of course, there'll be less waste because we won't be actually throwing as much stuff products into landfill. Oh, being incinerated or something. Yes. Yeah. So that's good. So we can see in Victoria that is coming in 2025. So hopefully health services are starting to look at how they might change. I would hope so, because there might be quite a bit of organisation that needs to happen. I think a lot of hospitals have actually retired their sterilising equipment and completely moved away 
Wow, really? So that they are actually reliant on single use. So probably will take a few years to come back on track. Mm. I suppose with DEA, you've had over a decade of more advocacy kind of work. And now you're moving into an academic position. What's big on your horizon in terms of what we need to do for research in this area? There's a lot of research that actually needs to happen and will facilitate our race to net zero for healthcare and also education. So we really need to, let's start with the education, maybe be equipping our present and future doctors to be practising in a world where sustainable healthcare is a consideration in our practices. Part of that is actually further research on the best pathways, where the hotspots are for greenhouse gas emissions within healthcare and where the biggest waste streams are. And some fantastic research has already been done, particularly by Australian healthcare professionals. Forbes McGain is one that really needs to be noted. But there's still a lot of areas that we don't know. We don't know the full life cycle assessment. Sometimes you think certain practice One may be more environmentally friendly than another and you might be surprised when the actual research is done. And a lot of measurement needs to happen. At the moment, we're really not measuring healthcare's footprint very accurately. There's been one study that was done and published several years ago that indicated the 7% total greenhouse gas emissions from healthcare. But that hasn't been repeated and we haven't done a lot of the granular research to work out where exactly we should be acting. And that, that's exactly what I hear from anaesthetists. I think we're quite research driven and people have that hesitancy because there's data for desflurane that when people are talking about, say, switching to Tiva, they're unsure about the life cycle impact of all the syringes that they use, all the consumables the waste propofol from opening a new bottle for each new patient who are not using it all. And I hear that there's just a lot of uncertainty sometimes. So is there anything in that for which there is really clear evidence? There have been quite a lot of studies actually on that, volatile anaesthetic agents compared with TIVA. So there's been several comprehensive life cycle assessments and definitely TIVA when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, is multiple times less than any of our volatile anaesthetic agents. And the full academic life cycle assessment does include all the products. It's a cradle-to-grave analysis. So it does include all the syringes, the electricity to drive the syringe drivers. Absolutely everything should be included in that. Propofol or Tiva, from a greenhouse gas perspective, is far less impactful than any of our volatile agents. And obviously the waste factor is important and propofol itself needs to be disposed of properly. It's toxic to aquatic environments and it does need to be incinerated at least 1,000 degrees Celsius. So it is definitely not a drug that should be disposed of into a normal bin. So these things are important to know and to be educated about. Mm, And that's good. I didn't realise there was such compelling evidence. So there we have the absolute answer there. Yes. Tiva or propofol is much less environmentally damaging than volatile agents. Sometimes when people have done studies and looked at where the actual greenhouse gas emissions are coming from or where the waste is coming from, it can be quite surprising. So just over the last two years with nitrous oxide, for instance, stemming from initial studies in Scotland and the UK, they found that a lot of the nitrous oxide is actually escaping like two of their hospitals, over 90% of it was actually escaping through leaks with their pipes. So without doing that kind of research and looking in detail, we can sometimes miss where the low-hanging fruit is. 
So for nitrous oxide as a start, looking at where discrepancy between what's being bought and what's being used and whether there are leakages occurring in hospitals is a really important thing. And Footscray Hospital has looked at that and found that over 70% of their nitrous oxide was leaking from one leakage within their hospital piping system now being rectified. In the latest edition of Australian Anaesthetist, one of the contributors was from WA and they looked at that as well. And do you think that you'll be doing further research? Well, at the moment, I'm involved in a research project that's actually trying to look at the amount of nitrous oxide that's used in Australia medically, because we don't have data on that. We're in the the process of collecting that. And I would then potentially like to be looking a bit more at roadmaps in Australia, roadmaps for healthcare decarbonisation. The NHS have got roadmaps that they've outlined with evidence behind them on what sectors, whether it be their electricity or their buildings or their models of care or their transport, how they're actually going to get to their aim, which is approximately net zero by 2040, and what sectors need to decrease by how much and over what time frames. And I think it would be fantastic in Australia if we could also emulate that and consider looking at evidence-based roadmaps for decarbonisation of our healthcare sector. DEA and the AMA and others have co-jointly called for the healthcare sector in Australia to be net zero by 2040 with an 80% emission reduction target by 2030, which is only eight years ago. Quite ambitious, but really what's necessary if as a sector we're going to do our part in meeting our Paris Agreement goals. So actually limiting global warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees. They're the significant emission cuts that we need this decade. And with the Victorian government move to go to fully renewable energy by 2025, have you seen any impact of that yet? No, I don't think I have seen any particular impact. But what it also, though, does is emphasise the need to electrify everything. I think it will influence reusable versus single-use equipment. And really pleasingly in Victoria, just this year, the Andrews government has announced that the new Melton Hospital which is a brand new hospital that's going to be built, significant size hospital, will be all electric. Mm. So it's not going to have any gas infrastructure. So it'll be built as all electric and then it will be run on 100% renewable electricity. Wow, okay. So that's already in the pipeline. That's good. Yes, so that's been announced and DEA and others are really working hard to make that the new norm for our hospitals. It is actually time that we really got off gas when it comes to supplying our hospitals and more broadly. Other hospitals that are already doing it in Australia, the Canberra Extension, which is a $600 million extension, will be all electric. And in Adelaide, they're building a very large new women's and children's hospital that will also be all electric and not have gas infrastructure. So I think Australia might be leading the way here. No, that's good. I think our local council has also gone to being fully electric and has installed community batteries around the place. So I think it's also a community shift as well. I think we also forget that healthcare has a lot of influence and you bring that up. So if healthcare leads or can lead, it's a big industry in Australia. It employs over a million people. Mm. It's about 10% of our GDP and it's a big purchaser and owner of land and energy and goods and products. So if the healthcare sector moves, it can influence other areas, other sectors to also follow suit. 
And as I've said before, I think it was a responsibility for us to lead. But also with that, we can influence behaviours, we can influence purchasing agreements and moving to 100% electric, 100% renewable energy. Also, our food choices, for instance, it's the biggest purchaser of food in Australia, the healthcare sector. Oh, interesting. If we actually just looked at that as well and moved towards a sustainable, imagine that, a sustainable diets for our patients and staff in hospital, the influence it could have over the food industry as well. Wow. So is there that metric that you can buy food that has been sustainably produced? They are moving towards that in the United Kingdom. In the United Kingdom, the NHS is also said to its over 80,000 suppliers that they need to meet or beat their emission reduction targets by the end of this decade or they won't be renewing their contracts. And as I said before, the NHS, they have a net zero by 2040 approximately target. So they are using their purchasing power to influence far more broadly than just what happens in England. Yeah, and that's interesting. You just think of the health system contributing to health, but of course, as you mentioned, the huge things like the purchasing power of the health system in general or in total is huge. And, and that goes also, if you think about it for vehicles, fleets, they're also moving towards electric ambulances in London, apparently. All right. So we've got a bit of work to do, a bit of work to catch up with what's happening in the UK by the sounds of it. I think we've definitely lagged. And at COP26, there was a health program that over 50 countries joined in on. And part of that was moving towards climate resilient and climate sustainable healthcare systems. Unfortunately, Australia was missing from that and still hasn't joined on. That COP26 health program is now transformed to a program called ATASH, which is Alliance for Transformative Action on Climate and Health. Right. It's got 60 countries that have signed up to that. And I really do hope that Australia federally will also become part of that. Interestingly, New South Wales Health has gone out on a limb and it's actually joined that alliance. Oh, really? Independent of the federal government? Yes. And New South Wales Health have set up a climate risk and net zero unit in the last 12 months, which is doing some fantastic work. One of the things they're doing is employing clinical leads to help with addressing sustainable modes of care. Fantastic. There we go. So we've got some work to do and some catch up there. But look, thank you. It's been really informative. I'm hoping that more people get on board. I'm hoping that more people can understand how this is such an imperative for us in healthcare to tackle in the short term and in the long term. And I wanted to ask, is there anything else that you wanted to say? Thank you. Thank you, Susie. Thank you for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to talk about this obviously very important subject and it's so important for us as doctors to act and to lead. I'd just like to finish by pointing out that business as usual is not an option. So business as usual for the healthcare sector, it's been estimated business as usual means we will have tripled our greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 as a sector. Business as usual for the global climate and global heating means that probably by 2100 or a child born today will be experiencing a world that's four degrees warmer than pre-industrial levels. So Mm. business as usual is not an option. And what's more, it's really this decade that is significant. We haven't really acted. We haven't acted at all or decisively enough over the last decade. 
this decade matters. But the thing is that we know what we need to do now and we also have the technology to do it. So there is no excuse. <laughs> there is no excuse, exactly. Oh, thank you. Such powerful words. Thank you for that. It's been wonderful talking with you. Fantastic leadership in this area. Thank you for that. And all the best with your new role at the University of Melbourne. I can't wait to see what becomes of that. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation and feel as inspired as I do to do better. It's always great speaking with someone so knowledgeable, passionate and articulate, particularly on a topic as important as the environment. I'm hoping we shattered a few myths and perhaps challenged your ideas about how our practice as anesthetists can impact our precious planet. If you would like to read more, then I can point you in the direction of the September 2022 edition of Australian Anesthetist. That's the coffee table style magazine produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists that is available to download freely from the ASA website. Of course, I'll put a link to it in the episode notes along with any other resources that I mention. In that particular edition of Australian Anesthetist, you will find some further discussion of waste management, TIVA, and in the first instance, reducing what we use and therefore creating less waste. You'll also find an audit from Drs. Elliot Smith and Chris Mitchell, which found that 93%, that's right, 93% of the nitrous oxide that was purchased by their hospital in Perth was escaping directly into the atmosphere. Thankfully, that has since been rectified. Another group that is encouraging regular audits in this area, which Professor Kayak mentioned, is TRASH, which is spelt T-R-A number two S-H. And that stands for the Trainee-Led Research and Audit in Anesthesia, that's where the two A's come from, for sustainable healthcare. If you want to learn more about TRASH and also hear from another inspiring leader in anesthesia, then I can point you towards episode 69 of this podcast, Australian Anesthesia, where I talk with Trash co-founder, Dr. Jess Davies. As I said, I hope this podcast has inspired you or perhaps has challenged some of your beliefs. If it has, either way, I'm keen to find out how. So please feel free to let me know via email on podcast at asa.org.au. In the meantime, I hope you're staying safe and well out there and looking after yourself as well as the planet. Remember, we only have one and we need to look after it. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast hosting platforms, as well as YouTube. This podcast is produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists and hosted by Dr. Susie New with music created by Dr. Mark Seuss. The ASA was formed in 1934, and our vision is for every anesthetist in Australia to be at their best, providing the highest quality anesthesia and perioperative care through excellent technical and non-technical skills. We also hope that this means that you are functioning at your best when you're away from work. In this podcast, we have conversations that seek to inform, challenge and inspire you to keep you performing at your best. Members of the ASA can access full versions of all episodes by logging into the ASA website at asa.org.au. If you are listening on your favourite podcast app, then make sure you look at the episode notes for the direct link to the podcast on the ASA website. Also, feel free to follow or subscribe so that you can receive the latest episodes as we do publish regularly. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email us on podcast at asa.org.au. Thank you for your time and we hope you enjoyed listening. Listening.